Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandspring. Hello, Ian. Good evening, Simon. Uh, talk about last minute there. Um, yes, apologies for the um, the slight confusion. My Wi-Fi decided to throw me out. So um, I'm on alternative arrangements, and hopefully they will last. So welcome to this evening's show. Indeed. Um, what our viewers won't know is the last-minute scrabble panic. Um, just as we were in the countdown to go live, um, Ian dropped off the call. Um, so... <laughs> So we we press ahead, we carry on, um, because we've got serious matters to discuss this evening, and we have a highly esteemed uh, guest uh, from uh, from Portsmouth University, no less. We have um, we have Dr. Paul Flenley, uh, the senior lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Portsmouth, uh, specialising in Russian politics and foreign policy. So we've got him on the show to talk about the situation in Ukraine. Yeah, and welcome, Paul, and our, our our usual listeners know that we tend to take a, a reasonably light-hearted and irreverent look at uh, most things political. So, uh, obviously, with the, the this subject being as um, as serious as it is, our our usual tone might be a little bit more uh, focused. But thank you, Paul, for for joining us. On uh, uh, you must be a busy man at the moment. Pleasure, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Nice to join you. Lots to discuss. Lots. To talk about, indeed yes the, yeah well that's the other thing as um just before um just before we also went live we both wanted to quickly hit refresh on our news screens just in case anything had, had changed so um so yes so there's a yes there's a complex and evolving situation obviously because of um because of uh, putin's invasion of ukraine um that started uh, the day after um, Russia's um, the um, day of the, the fatherland, the they're basically their national day of holiday to uh, commemorate mm -hmm. uh, the actions of the services. Um, so, uh, so Paul, would you could you give us a, um, a brief history of of Ukraine and uh, just so we can put that into context? Because obviously, what we've heard this week is what's happening this week, but there's obviously a lot of stuff building up to that. Okay, yes. Well, I mean, not without sort of going too far back. I mean, it's um, obviously part of the dispute between Putin and uh, Ukraine is Putin's denial of the uh, uh, viability of Ukraine as an independent state. Uh, he doesn't accept Ukraine has any kind of right to see itself as independent from Russia. Uh, and that in many ways goes back to the early kind of uh, origins of Russia, uh, the earliest... Uh, in Russia was Kiev Rus. Uh, so that's why uh, with, with his capital in Kiev, which is now in Ukraine, and many Russian nationalists therefore see the origins of Russia and the Russian state uh, actually in Kiev. Uh, but obviously for Ukrainian historians, they say, well, that means that we're of the older state. <laughs> that Moscow was a little village on the edge of Kiev uh, when Kiev was the big power. So there's a big argument right at the start of Russian history, Russian history as to which is the more viable uh, state. I mean, Ukraine uh, was, for most of the period, part of the Russian Empire. You know, as you know, the Russian Empire was a multi-ethnic empire, so it included not just Russians, but over 100 different nationalities, including Ukrainians. 
Uh, and then, as you know, in 1917, that all fell apart in the Russian Revolution. Uh, and like uh, most of the national minorities, the Ukrainians tried to establish independence. So for a brief period after the Russian Revolution, there was a Ukrainian, independent Ukrainian republic. But the civil war in that area was really vicious. Uh, all kinds of you know, powers trying to get involved. Uh, anarchists down there as well, trying to establish their separate anarchist state. Uh, and eventually the Red Army conquered uh, the Ukrainian Bolsheviks uh, managed to take over the territory, and in 1922, it was incorporated in the Soviet Union. Uh, and the way that the way the Bolsheviks, because the Tsarist Empire was just one uh, kind of unified state, but the the, the 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 communists decided to manage the different ethnic minorities by establishing republics. So all the all the kind of big minorities were given a republic within the Soviet Union, that's what it's called, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Mm. Uh, so the Ukrainians, if you like, were given a Ukrainian Republic, just like the um, Kazakhs, Kazakhstan was created for the first time, and Tajikistan and so on, well, the Ukrainian Republic uh, was created, uh, and that was uh, incorporated, it was run, it was run by Ukrainians, uh, so the, the Ukrainian language was dominant in the 1920s, until Stalin, until the 1930s. And then there was, for Ukrainians, there was the tragedy, which is not very well known across the world, of the famine in the early 30s, 1932, 1933, when some five to seven million people starved to death uh, because of Stalin's collectivization campaign. And be between Ukrainians and Russians, there's a dispute uh, as to whether that was a deliberate policy by Stalin to kill off Ukrainian nationalism, uh, or whether it was just a byproduct of collectivization. Anyway, as a result of that, there was kind of more Russification of Ukraine and a subjugation of Ukrainian nationalism, really. Uh, and it only really begins to come alive again with the under Gorbachev. You know, there's a revival of Ukrainian nationalism, as there was in other parts of the Soviet Union when Gorbachev introduced his. Um, reformed and, and encouraged the kind of national minorities with this democratization process and then in 1991 the ukrainians the uh, population of the ukrainian republic voted for independence including russian speakers even the russian speakers mm. in ukraine also voted that ukraine should be a independent country so with the collapse of the soviet union obviously ukraine then becomes an independent state and both Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers supported it. Um, and then after, obviously, during the course of the independence, you had an initially uh, a kind of pro-Russian uh, president, and uh, Kuchma, not, not initially, but uh, the second president was Kuchma, who was uh, kind of associated with corruption and became gradually unpopular in and then in 2004, when he st stood down, uh, he expected a kind of pro-Russian candidate, Yanukovych, to be elected. Uh, but the, uh, the election was rigged uh, and there was a big protest, the Orange Revolution in 2004. And as a result of that, the vote was declared null and void. A new elections held and Yushchenko won the presidency. Uh, and then you, that's when Ukraine really begins 
to move towards the West. Yushchenko wanted to pursue a pro-Western, pro-EU uh, policy. But then in 2010, uh, because of problems with the Yushchenko government, uh, Yanukovych is re-elected. Sorry, Yanukovych is elected president in 2010. And he pursues a right kind of double-edged policy. On the one hand, still claiming to be pro-EU, but also uh, uh, having a very close relationship with with Putin uh, and Russia. And in 2013, uh, he promises to sign an association agreement with the European Union. And then at the last minute, partly because of pressure from Putin, he decides not to sign it. And that's when there's a mass protests in 2014, the Euromaidan, uh, Yanukovych um, departs to Russia. Uh, and uh, the, the, that's when the, the Russians seize the Crimea. Uh, and obviously you have the separatist republics um, uh, in the eastern Ukraine, supported by Russia. Uh, and um, uh, a Por Poroshenko becomes the president uh, elected. And then uh, after Poroshenko, the current president, Zelensky, uh, is elected president. And that's more or less brings us up to the uh, crisis at the moment, the state of things as they are, right? Thank you, Paul. I mean, that's that's a very that's a very thorough kind of timeline of history, and I guess the picture that it paints is a uh, it, it is an uneasy tension between Russia and Ukraine, which has has kind of swung between better and worse over um, you know it was just over a hundred years there from from you know living uneasily cheek by jowl to, to to open conflict i guess when we look at the current the um the current situation you know russia had been massing masses massing forces on the borders for several months and and mm -hmm. probably for you know three weeks before it happened um you know western media was reporting the americans were you know were being very vocal but most ukrainians seemed to the Ukrainian people seem to take a much more relaxed attitude than than the West, and and kind of we're almost well, don't worry about it. And and so I guess the question is, a little bit sort of, almost why now, and and where does that leave the Ukrainian people who who seem to think that their next door neighbour would never go quite this far? Yes, I mean, I think you're right. Nobody predicted uh, what would happen. Uh, and in some senses, we've all been, and the, and the countries around uh, Russia, including uh, Ukraine, have been lulled into a sense of false security because over a number of years, uh, the Russians have been doing these mass military exercises. I mean, for some years now, they've had uh, ones in the east, the Vostok exercises, and they've had earlier ones in west, including thousands of troops. So we became used to the idea that it was not unusual to have a big military exercise in Belarus coordinating with the Russian forces, nothing to be too worried about. Uh, and Putin told us, oh, don't worry, they're just uh, military exercises. Um, and it was part of, when you look at Russian military tactics, that is very much part of the, of the Russian strategy, unpredictability uh, and surprise. Uh, you don't quite know what's going to happen until it's happening. <laughs> Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, and I guess the surprise in this case, Paul, is that that 
you know, whilst you could argue there was no surprise because the, you know, the, the posturing was there for, for, for weeks in advance, it, it was the fact that this time, you know, they actually went and did it. Is there, is there anything that, that you've kind of identified as to what's different? I think that's what, what people are trying to, trying to kind of unfurl. Yes, I mean, I think in the past, the strategy uh, Russia was used to using what we call co coercive uh, military, coercive diplomacy, mm. i.e. massing troops in order to put pressure to bully, if you like, mm. uh, and get get a change of policy. Presumably they were hoping that by massing these troops they'd get a change of mind in the, by the Ukrainian government, they'd get concessions from the West uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, what is different, and also, I mean, the, there was a lot of an analysis which suggested that what they were doing was rather like what they did in 2008 uh, with Georgia, a similar kind of situation of intervening to support the sort of rogue republics within Georgia, the South Ossetia, uh, to protect them apparently against the Georgian government. Uh, and you know, many uh, analysts, including myself, felt well the, the 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 maximum they're going to do is intervene uh, to reinforce the independence of those two republics in eastern mm. uh, eastern ukraine and that would be the extent of it uh, i think what is different this time and i think this is where every i don't know anybody who predicted that, that he would go beyond that uh, and have a full-scale invasion uh, an attack on kiev and i think that's um that's uh, there's that's certainly the unknown the, the kind of development which was not predicted but also i think it's a dangerous one from his point of view because uh when you look at 2008 with georgia and also the support for the eastern republics in, in ukraine there was a certain degree of domestic support domestic understanding a lot of support for the seizure of crimea but there's little or no support in russia for this wider invasion and that's why i think he might have outreached himself i mean i think he has outreached himself uh, and he's gone too far in many ways uh, because it's not clear what the end goal is in the past there were clear end goals of establishing those uh, independent republics uh, if he'd just gone for luhansk and donetsk then you could say well he was defending russian minorities uh, and he would have a, a, a foothold uh, within Ukraine. He would have prevented Ukrainian membership of NATO. So he would have, ch have achieved something quite concrete. Now, what he's doing, well, he's talking about uh, demilitarization of Ukraine, which is so vague. Um, is it likely to be achievable? Denazification of the Ukraine, which indicates that he's got sort of tied up in his own kind of rather detached interpretation of of what ukraine is mm. uh, and i think that's what's different this time uh he, he almost is less rational you know the, I mean, i'm not trying to just i'm try, not trying to justify no, what no. he did before but you could see a reason for it and, and and a clear concrete end result seizure of crimea seizure of crimea what he's doing there is uh, getting grabbed and uh, securing the russian naval base uh, in Crimea, and it has clear strategic ends. But this, this, it's 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 difficult to see what the end result is. Really. 
Yeah, if we explore that a bit more, because I, I think that's one of our, our questions further down. In terms of the annexing of Crimea, it, it, it all seemed, you know, whilst, it, you know, the rest of the world couldn't support or endorse that, you mm. you could, in, in a natural, in, in a way, understand strategically that he wanted that corridor from Russia to mm. the Black Sea, where the majority of the of you know that that's one of their biggest naval bases and and yeah. i guess that's what seems different this time is that that kind of strategic intent of where do you want this to end up is mm -hmm. nowhere near as clear this time absolutely yes i think you're, you're spot on there really and i think you know with crimea uh, i mean what they clearly feared after the 2014 revolution mm -hmm. if you have a kind of uh, pro-western government in kiev which joins NATO, then you might have a NATO naval base in Crimea, and the the Russian Navy would be kicked out. Well, they couldn't. Putin couldn't couldn't stomach that. So yeah. seize Crimea and ensure, as you, you rightly say, it, it it secures that kind of important strategic cover to uh, to the Black Sea and into the Mediterranean. Uh, so there's a clear reason for that. Uh, this time, it's not clear, as you say, what the uh, security goal is what the advantages are. Um, he's talking about, I mean, to some extent, his rhetoric goes back to a, a narrative from the 1990s onwards, which started with Yeltsin, really, and NATO enlargement, the opposition to NATO enlargement and the desire to stop it, really. Uh, and I suppose what his agenda was in terms of going further into Ukraine is to finally secure a pro-Russian Ukrainian government and ensure that, the, that Ukraine would never join NATO. I mean, he, he more or less said that to the German Chancellor when when the German Chancellor went to Moscow. He said, I know you say that NATO, Ukraine is not likely to join NATO, but I want a decision now. No, I'm not. It's not enough to say it'll never, it won't join for the next two, ten years. I never wanted to join <laughs> NATO. So I suppose in his mind, he suggests he, it, the strategy is simply to, to so secure a pro-Russian government that Ukraine is, um, never joins NATO. But I think it's so, you know, that is such a dangerous and kind of vague strategy that it's likely to unravel. I mean, I just, mm. A, it doesn't have domestic support. You're already seeing um, reports of Russian soldiers in Ukraine saying, why are we here? Where are we going? <laughs> uh, and also there are, there are demonstrations on the streets of, uh, of uh, Russia. It could backfire, really. I think this, uh, my, my view is that, um, and this is really just scenario, but it could be a, a disastrous gamble for Putin really uh, and this the kind of loss of support could could be bad for him internally in, in, in russia do, um, do you think it could politically be his undoing in the sense he's, he's kind of reached too far i think so yes i mean this is where i'm sticking my neck out but uh, it depends how the west and the ukrainian forces and government uh, respond but if the west is absolutely uh, secure um, rock solid about its sanctions it really damages the oligarchs uh, and 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 hurts the people around putin hurts the elite around putin and if the ukrainian military resists and the population resists so much 
that the Russian army gets bogged down. There are thousands of Russian soldiers are killed. Uh, the body bags start coming home. Then I think not so much to do with the uh, protests on the streets, but I think the people around Putin, the elite around Putin, will start thinking, well, where is this guy taking us? You know, there's no obvious, clear, concrete end results with this. It's going to end in disaster. And the th that's the thing. You have to think about the Russian political system. Most people think that Russian uh, people, um, Russian presidents are absolutely powerful, but they're not. They they depend on the support of factions and interest groups. So Putin is there because he defends the interests of various factions and interest groups. Uh, and if he alienates them, then it, it could be the end. They could turn against him. Uh, as happened with Khrushchev, look at what happened with Khrushchev after the Cuban Missile Crisis. He, he went too far. He, he thought he was invincible and he, end, he end, ended up alienating the military, uh, the, the party leadership, etc. So uh, that could be the case with Putin. He's already partly sidelining the business elite. If, he, if the military find themselves bogged down in, a, in an unwinnable war, then the military will turn against him. And then that's its end game for him. So he could end up with, a, with, with the end of Putin. You know, this could be... And also you can imagine he's been so kind of labelled as a pariah in the West. How can he continue to be the leader of Russia? How can he go to international conferences and summits and talk to the US president again? It's, um, even the Chinese have distanced themselves from him. You know, they don't want to be sucked into Russia's game. You know, okay, okay, they've enjoyed a bit, you know, the Russians are making difficulties for the United States. But they're very careful about getting any kind of close alliance with the Russians for this very reason. They don't want to be sucked into some kind of futile confrontation yeah. with the United States or whatever. Yeah, because um, China and India both um, abstained, didn't they, from the vote in the, in the yeah. UN? Um, with regards right, to yeah. you know condemning uh, the Russian actions, so you know they've not supported, uh, you know they've not supported um, um, Putin at all in that respect. So that no. that was a, a key moment. I think that's true. Though he's isolated, really, mm. and um, um, and I would imagine that the people, the groups around him, will start to question uh, whether this is going anywhere and how they get out of it. I mean, what was interesting was the, the that last meeting of the Security Council. The, the Security Council is the most is the powerful uh, group in, in Russia, governing group in Russia, that contains all the most significant, powerful heads of the military and the security services, the Prime Minister. And normally, when you see a picture of the Security Council, it's a group around a table, uh, you know, as though it's a collective decision. This last meeting, you had. Putin sitting aside like some kind of tsar, uh, and the other ministers are being called one by one, like sort of schoolboys, hmm. uh, to give their result. And you could see on their faces they were very uncomfortable. And he humiliated Norishkin, the head of the foreign uh, security. I mean, these people are thinking, you know, becoming more and more embarrassed, I think, and resentful. Um, uh, so it's almost he's been, he's been in power now for 20 years. So he, it may be the case that he just thinks he's in, invincible. 
uh, yeah. and have begun to make this. Yeah. But is it is it because um, you know kind of speaking to that a little bit? Is it possibly that because part of the language that he talks about is about um, uh, you know the the separatist um, areas that, that what he's recognised as the the separatist republics um, that NATO the NATO mm-hmm. allies have, have condemned Russia for recognising them. Is it that? perhaps he's believed his own propaganda that effectively the, the Russian troops were going to be celebrated and given a warm welcome for, you know, quote unquote, liberating those areas from what he's described as a oppressive Ukrainian Nazi regime of drug, um, of drug addicts. Um, you know, it doesn't kind of even kind of make sense, but it's almost like he's believed his own spin to the point that actually he's, you know, he sent his forces in to do this thing because he expected a, an entirely different welcome, and and the Ukrainian people are um, uh, are basically giving, uh, staying their ground, and and not, you know, and certain not even in those areas, uh, you know, no one's rolling out the red carpet. It seems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think you, you're spot on there. That um, there's a sense, and you, you see this is a, a lot of people in power for some time, or dictators. They're surrounded by yes, yes people, you know, yes men, hmm. who only who only tell them the information that they want to hear, uh, yeah. only tell them information that confirms their own interpretation. So, as you are absolutely right, I'm sure he believed that the, the Ukrainian people would welcome their Russian brothers, hmm. uh, and he believed his own interpretation and, and rhetoric about the nature of Ukraine and that's absolutely true and it's the sign of his detachment yeah Yeah. it's a strange form of confirmation bias if you keep shooting the people that disagree with you yes that eventually all you do is surround yourself with people that say yes Mm. yes absolutely but that's very dangerous Mm. for um for for dictators isn't it it's 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 a point at which they then overreach themselves uh, and part of their kind of downfall really so if we just unpack that a little bit more, Paul, you know, when you look at the sort of structure of Russian politics and, and you touched earlier on the fact that there are, you know, whilst it's not a democracy, there are there are factions and interests that influence who sits at the head of the Kremlin. Um, you know, where does Putin stand in terms of, of you know, prior to this action? Um, it. it uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a great scholar or a studier of it, but it felt like it was it was all reasonably stable. There was a bit of every so often muscle flexing, and mm-hmm. Russia had seemed to have sort of almost found its place within the world. You know, how would you yeah. have assessed Russian politics sort of prior to this this kind of rather wild action? Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, every, all the analysis was were that uh, up until about a year ago, they'd somehow developed a, a kind of the Putin system, as it were. They, they, he'd seemed to have developed a kind of rather mature, sophisticated form of authoritarianism, which seemed to work and be stable. You know, not, not democratic, but it seemed to have the veneer of democracy. So you, you had elections that he was able to manipulate those elections and get the result he wanted. You had uh, opposition parties but they were loyal opposition parties. Uh, and you, he, was, he managed to exclude all the people who could really oppose him. Mm. Anybody who was uh, really a, connected to the West, they were labeled as foreign agents. So all this, one of the functions of the anti-Westernism is anybody who was, had links with um, uh, the European Union or was in opposition could, could be seen as an enemy agent almost. 
Uh, so he had a way of marginalizing the real opposition. Uh, and it seemed as though this was a kind of new form of authoritarianism which worked. Uh, and as you rightly say, provided a degree of stability. But I think it's quite clear what has happened in the last year or so. He's moved to a much cruder form of authoritarianism. That instead of allowing a little bit of protest and some kind of opposition, he's begun to clamp down even on loyal opposition. So he's, he's and, and that's quite dangerous, really. The cruder form of yeah, from the outside looking in, there almost appeared to be, and I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but a little bit of a, a sort of phony war in terms of that relationship between the Kremlin and the protesters was that mm -hmm. the people who could really make a difference have been sidelined and, yeah. you know, will allow a little bit of protest about democracy and, you know, we won't crush it with an iron fist so we don't look like we're as bad as we are and, and kind of, you know, like you say, a lot of his rhetoric was you know, very sort of Cold War enemy mm -hmm. actors, you know, mm -hmm. if you're not a loyal Russian, then you're working for the enemy. And that mm -hmm. whole sort of charade seemed that everybody had kind of nodded at each other, understanding it was, mm -hmm. there were elements mm -hmm. of charade, but mm -hmm. it, it kept, you know, it quote unquote kept the peace. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, but now he's begun, he began to unravel even that sophisticated mechanism. So, I mean, for example, one of his key opponents out on the streets is Navalny. Navalny was quite useful because he didn't have a political party and he wasn't really able to organize in order to really take power or to seriously threaten Putin. Now, in the past, he would just allow Navalny to have his protests and that operate as a kind of pressure valve uh, on the system. People could have a few protests, go home and think uh, that was, um, they, they satisfied their kind of desire for protest, but he didn't actually threaten the system. Mm. But now obviously he's tried to kill Navalny <laughs> and uh, has ha had him under arrest. So even those, what I'm saying, even those kind of rather sophisticated forms of managing the authoritarian system have been dispensed with. Uh, and it's much more crudely authoritarian now. And that's really dangerous. I mean, it's, 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 it's the, the point of view of the survival of the Putin system. That's much more dangerous, really. That, that's kind of something... Uh, um, you might find Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's kind of something Tim touches on in a um, in in the comments. He he, he basically asked whether yeah. Putin be uh, sorry Putin being pushed into a um, into a corner means that he's got nothing to lose. And in that case, could be more mm -hmm. desperate um, because he's got um, he hasn't got mm -hmm. you know the elders in the Politburo um, to answer to mm -hmm. like like Khrushchev would have done. You know, we, we, you know, if we if yeah. kind of think back to you know yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis and yeah. all, the, all of those sorts of things. He hasn't got that to answer to because he's dismantled those those checks and balances yeah. in the party apparatus. Yeah, yes, that's a very good point actually. Yes, that he, although we thought about the Soviet system as a dictatorship, it, there was that kind of element of collective leadership at the mm. top. So uh, as you rightly say, uh, Tim rightly says, other members of the Politburo could eventually move against um, uh, the individual who was Secretary General of the party. Uh, and this, yes, is much more dangerous. Uh, you're, rightly, you're right, because it's not clear who could move uh, against Putin. It's much more of a, a one-man uh, leadership. Uh, and he could, it could go nasty. I mean, Putin on his path to power was quite ruthless you know, when he was first in order to um, 
establish his credentials as a tough president uh, uh, conducting that second war in Chechnya, he was actually quite ruthless in terms of the victims, bombing of Gros flattening of Grozny. But when you look at the conduct of the war in Syria, uh, supporting Assad, I mean, again, quite ruthlessly uh, bombing civilian areas, hospitals, etc. So he has that capacity uh, to, to uh, be ruthless. Um, and it would depend on whether the military is prepared to follow him, really. And I think that leads us, Paul, into how the West has responded. And, and I think the West and NATO have made it you know, very clear that they're prepared to support Ukraine in any mm -hmm. way possible, with the exception of deploying boots on the mm -hmm. ground. Do, do you think yeah. that emboldens Putin or, or, you know, is there an element of, for, from a Western NATO perspective, that is the place that they just simply cannot go? I think that's wise. I mean, I, I do. I do think that's to to do so would have been even and adding to the gamble and, and incredibly risky, given uh, that we don't quite know what Putin is thinking and what he's capable of. Uh, but on the other hand, you're quite right. I mean, Putin is um, exploiting a general reluctance on the part of the West to engage militarily. I mean, obviously, there are good reasons why. They're not prepared to, to engage in, in, in Ukraine because it's not a member of NATO. But I think a broader point is that Putin is seizing this moment because he's seen that the West, you know, what has happened with disengagement from Afghanistan, the disengagement of the United States from Syria. He's seen that the West has no appetite for significant military uh, engagement. Uh, uh, and that, that's a, that is an opportunity so that that emboldens him i think where what is quite clear is russia is i mean obviously the, the united states and nato has far more far superior military capability than russia but what russia has or what putin uh, has is the will to use the military mm. and the west doesn't have that kind of will and he knows that uh, and is exploiting that um, so that, that's in fact, in that sense, he's emboldened by the broader uh, Western um, kind of uh, attitude at the moment to, to military engagement. And I think Afghanistan must have had a, the, the West doesn't seem to be prepared to stand by its allies uh, and its clients in the way that, um, that Putin is, really. So, yeah, and Af Afghanistan's an interesting one, isn't it, Paul? Because, you know, the, the Russians got badly burned when they went into Afghanistan, as did the West. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if we see the, the behavior, and I, I guess it's early days and very few shots have been fired, but, you know, mm -hmm. when I, I see the news reports of, you know, the, the, the average Ukrainian, um, you know, filling bottles with petrol and describing them as Putin smoothies and, and, you know, the handing out of Kalashnikov 74s that, it feels to me like they're, they're even if Russia were to sweep to a nominal military victory reasonably quickly, it looks to me like you you are going to have an armed population who you know will will be into civil disobedience, will be into sporadic guerrilla attacks, and you know I, I guess that's the question of for, for Putin is is that. You know, is this his next Afghanistan as, as mm -hmm. you know, IEDs and 
uh, mm. random attacks see regular body bags being shipped back to Moscow. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I mean they have, as you rightly say, they have the military size in order to be able to get take victory, but not to hold a country. Uh, and in order to be able to hold a country, you need popular support. And if there is no popular support, as he obviously, as you rightly said earlier, he obviously expected a degree of popular support. But if there isn't any, then it's going they are going to get bogged down, and as you rightly say, will be undermined by guerrilla tactics. Uh, and that will have an effect on the morale of the of the Russian army itself, because a lot of these are ordinary Russian conscripts. You know, they're going to be demoralized uh, if they're being attacked by Ukrainian citizens. Uh, so it will have an effect on the morale and capacity of the of the Russian military, really, a sustained uh, anti-Russian sort of guerrilla campaign. Really. So that yeah. they might, as you might say, they, they might be successful in taking Kiev. But initially, it. but then trying to help, try and keep it, yeah. uh, they can be worn down very, very quickly. So, I mean, isn't that in a sense also more kind of dangerous? Because strategically, I guess that gives him three options, doesn't it? Either, either he withdraws, or he withdraws mm. to the areas of the quote-unquote separatist republics, or mm. he does what he did in Chechnya, gets uh, impatient with not making enough progress and basically starts ratcheting up the body count by mm -hmm. using ever more indiscriminate weapons mm -hmm. uh, and tactics yeah. to yes. eradicate the enemy. Well, the latter is a possibility, but the thing is, you know, the, Ukraine is an enormous country. Mm. You know, Chechnya is a relatively small area and the the cities he had to, well he only had to really control Grozny uh, and um, and that that was it but I mean you're talking in Ukraine you're talking about trying to hold a country which is the size or larger than France uh, 40 million population it's not it's not doable really uh, and, and to try to hold Ukraine against the support of the population is is just going to, is not possible uh, so in that sense, he's um, it's not like Afghanistan. I mean, uh, Afghanistan again, you, 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 all you need to do is control particular, a small number of key urban areas. Uh, but in, in in Ukraine, it's an enormous territory. So I think I think the the scenario, the possible scenario, is withdrawal to those eastern uh, republics. But even then, has he not gone too far to make even that viable? Uh, Mm. Yeah, because I wonder whether he's alienated the support of even the what people who were formerly pro-Russian, uh, formerly supportive, will, will not really want to support. Yeah. It was very interesting. One of the news articles I, I um, was looking at this afternoon. There was a Ukrainian lady who said, you know, if his objective was to make Ukraine more Russian, mm -hmm. he's failed because I won't yeah. speak Russian anymore. Yes. Russian's the language of the enemy, not Absolutely. the language of Ukraine. Yes, I think that's a good point. He's actually produced the, the very opposite of what he wanted. Mm. You know, he's lost Ukraine now, really. Uh, whereas he wanted to keep Ukraine in the Russian orbit. And in all his cards, you know, he's, he's, he's now lost Ukraine. And as you say, if anything, he's done more to solidify a Ukrainian identity. Which you could argue there was a problem with that before, just uh, tensions between the different various areas of Ukraine. Now 
know there's a clear, as often happens uh, in periods of conflict, you get a, a greater kind of sense of nas common national identity. You know, Zelensky was was rather unpopular uh, before, and now he's heroic. Really, yeah, so it's, I think he's cemented. It, it's strange. So I mean, obviously, 2014, Russia annexed Crimea. Crimea, you you said obviously that's mm. about um access to the um to the to the black sea to um uh, for the you know for the naval um base etc so what why was that not enough mm -hmm. why what's why 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 do why do this now i think well because he obviously had greater uh, ambitions i mean obviously crimea was specific uh, an opportunity mm -hmm. i mean he's, putin is an opportunist and uh, he hadn't planned to take crimea he sought the opportunity and did it uh, for security reasons but i suppose his long term and you can see the anger on his face in the, one of those last speeches he has he has felt this humiliation uh, of the way russia was treated at the end of the cold war and has always wanted to push back the kind of geopolitical gains of the west so um, that was his grand project if you like to push back a, a that nato should not advance any further uh, are closer to the Russian borders, and if possible, try to reverse uh, the geopolitical situation that had developed since the Cold War. So he has a much longer narrative that he's playing to, uh, and uh, I think that was the. And he saw this as an opportunity. And uh, I mean, that's what's in it for him. Uh, I mean, obviously, looking at the situation, um, part of the invasion, you know, part of the plan to. Attack Ukraine from uh, from multiple sides. Crimea gave them uh, a way to attack Ukraine from the south. Um, they came in from the east, but they also came in from the north, from Belarus, where they'd been on military manoeuvres with, with the Belarus army. What what's in it for Belarus to be complicit in it in an invasion like this of a neighbouring country? Well, I suppose it, there it's uh, it's not so much what's in it for Belarus, but what's in it for Lukashenko. Uh, because uh, people have forgotten more or less now the kind of democratization movement in Belarus and the way uh, Lukashenko ha has held on to power largely uh, with uh, Russian and also with the support of his security forces. Uh, so the real um, beneficiary are not the, is not Belarus, but uh, Lukashenko as an ally of um, Putin. Uh, and more or less, and Belarus has more or less been colonized by Russia. I mean, you've got massive Russian forces in Belarus now, uh, and it's doubtful that they'll go home. So, and Belarus is increasingly you know, integrated with Russia its security services, certainly. So the hidden, the hidden story uh, behind all this is what's happened to the independence of Belarus, uh, while we've all been focused on Kiev. Be Belarus has effectively been taken over by Russia. Uh, with, without us knowing it through these massive military exercises mm. um, but that that's why you know if um, if anything happens to Putin and it begins to unravel Putin then it can unravel for Lukashenko they are tied together they go they they, they survive or they go down together um, so you could see uh, as a result of you know, a backlash against Putin a back a resurgence a resurgence of the kind of democratization movement in in Belarus, um, so but they're very, at the moment they're very they're very tied together, and they, which wasn't always the case. It's interesting. Lukashenko 
for a long time was sort of distancing himself rather from Putin and trying to play Russia off against the European Union. But increasingly he became tied, especially with the internal unrest. Uh, his fate was more and more tied to, um, uh, to Putin. Um, but that is the kind of colonization of Belarus is a hidden story which has been going on while we've been concentrating on, um, on Ukraine. So would it be fair to say that Belarus is now effectively just a vassal state of Russia? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And the same kind of arguments can apply to Belarus, which uh, Putin has, has applied to Ukraine. You know, he's, un, he's attacked Ukraine on the basis that it's not a, a proper state. Uh, he's attacked its integrity. Well, the same argument can be applied if Belarus ever tried to uh, go turn more to the West. Uh, the same argument could be applied by him to Belarus, that it was constructed in the Soviet period, the Belarusians are just uh, Russians, um, uh, brother Russians. They're not really. It's not a serious independent country. So the same, exactly the same arguments could be applied to, um, in fact, even more so to Belarus, because at least there has been in Ukraine uh, a quite a strong nationalist movement. Where, whereas nationalist movements in Belarus, obviously, obviously there were in the nineteenth century, but not not as strong as they had been in the in Ukraine. Really. So. Um, Yes. So if we look at the response of the West, you know, again, we, we've touched on the fact and it's probably right that there aren't boots on the ground. You know, there. Mm. how do you think the economic sanctions, you know, uh, is the West going far enough? Are, are we are we all singing with one voice or has it just taken mm. some other countries? Because, mm. you know, we recognize that, that for different countries within Europe and within, mm. you know, even within the EU there, you know, the, the, the reliance on Russian fuel and gas particularly is, is, mm -hmm. is something that's very sensitive. Do, do you think the West has gone far enough and, and, and will it be enough to, to hurt Putin over time? I think it's well. It, certainly, if we if we decided to detach ourselves from use of uh, Russian gas, a that would be very difficult. Obviously, not not so much for us. It would obviously hit us, but it would be very difficult for Germany and other um, European Union countries in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. Um, but that maybe has what what it got to come to. But it would certainly certainly hit Russia because something like forty percent of the Russian state budget depends on selling gas to the European Union. So if they were not able to do that, they're not going to be able to pay their pensions, they're not going to be able to subsidize the regions. I mean, a lot of the, if not the majority of the Russian regions, don't forget that Russia is a federation, mm. uh, more than 80 different regions of which now Crimea has been added to that and probably this, you know, the subsidizing of the Eastern, or up until recently, subsidizing of the, those Eastern enclaves. All of those regions, depend on funding from Moscow and it's selling gas to the European Union which is sustaining that. Now if we hit the, the sale of gas there isn't much of an alternative. Uh, certainly China is nowhere near an alternative uh, customer uh, uh, for, to the European Union and the Chinese anyway in the recent deals have run a very hard bargain because <laughs> uh, they know they're in a very strong position. So Russia needs to sell gas to Europe uh, to survive and to buy off you know, the, the, the population, really. Um, so can I, 
can I just clarify that, Paul? Because I, I, I thought I heard you correctly, and then my brain said to me, that can't be true. That 40% of Russia's revenue is gas sales to the EU. Well, you know, the well, the, the um, of the state budget of the of the of yeah. the of, the, um, of the, the amount of money that, that the state needs to pay pensions and um, you know, subsidise the health service and and so on. It, it, it's 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 that significant. Yeah. So I guess if we follow that logic through, if we we could, as the West and the EU, deny mm -hmm. ourselves the Russian gas, that feels to me like a very rapid path to civil unrest in russia oh totally yes well it's already beginning you know there are in certain of the distant regions uh, there has been a degree of unrest out in the eastern regions of russia uh, because of uh, declining economic situation uh, so it's and the, the problem with the russian economy and this is to do with its anti-westernism it hasn't modernized enough mm. um, Medvedev, when the short period when Medvedev was president and Putin stepped down, Medvedev was intelligent enough to realize this was a big problem and he launched a modernization agenda. You had what we call the, the partnerships for modernization uh, with the European Union and he, um, he, he issued that very interesting that, uh, speech called Go Russia, in which he identified the big economic problems of Russia, including corruption. Uh, the need to wean Russia off its dependence on sales of energy uh, and broadly to, to diversify the economy. But that hasn't happened. Uh, and this is the conundrum. The more Russia you know, detaches itself from the West, the less, the more it's in a kind of economic cul-de-sac, really, and is not able to move away from this heavy dependence on energy. Uh, and even the energy sector needs uh, West, Western investment uh, or, or investment. So, I mean, a kind of a sanctions policy which cut Russia off from investment uh, and uh, decreased dependency on Russian energy would, you know, over time, not immediately, but would over time hit the Russian economy. And then you've got a problem with discontent, you know, how you're going to, you know, people's living standards. Uh, and you know, continuation or increase of these kind of um, uh, this kind of unrest which we've seen uh, already. I think it was Krasnoyarsk as the region not long ago, which you saw um, uh, protests uh, building. So, um, so that's it's a very vulnerable situation in terms of economically that Putin is in. Mm. I mean, that's why he needs um, you know, integration uh, with a global economy. A, a, way, a way of hitting. It depends on how strong the international community is on imposing sanctions. But a short period of really serious sanctions could, could really not necessarily change Putin's mind, but change the mind of the people around him, the, um, the, the, the business elite and the, 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 the military industrial uh, complex, which is a very powerful, always has been a very powerful interest group in um, Russian and previously Soviet politics. So, um, one of the things that um, that Putin talks about is, is uh, uh, about not liking having NATO kind of right up um, to his borders. I'm just going to pop a graphic up from uh, NATO's website of there, mm -hmm. and you can't kind of really make out the right. countries very easily there because they've chosen really, really pretty much ineligible colours. That, but the 
the area is kind of shading, uh, showing, you know, that um, there's a, a whole spread of countries uh, across all of Western into Eastern Europe that um, mm. that are um, the, where the NATO NATO's expansion ever ever eastwards with um, with yes. you know with Belarus on the um, eastern edge of that uh, and Ukraine this la- you know the large mm. area as you said earlier on it's a it's a massive kind of it's a massive um land area it's it's kind of about the size of germany and poland mm. together isn't it it's kind of it's a, a massive country in mm. um in in land mass uh and then obviously beyond mm. that uh being russian uh the the russian federation but it, it, if putin's mm. kind of argument is that he doesn't want nato on his borders doesn't um mm. subsuming ukraine if that if that's his end game doesn't that actually guarantee mm. nato's on his borders or are they just being used as a barrier well, then in that situation? Um, well, they're all, I mean, they're um, already on these borders in, in the sense that the, the former Baltic states are in NATO. So um, uh, there's there's already a sense in which NATO is right up to the borders. Um, and Ukraine, I suppose having Ukraine, uh, no NATO right up to his board, it's, uh, Russia's borders is... It, again, it fits in. I'm trying to think of if one ha- often has to think of the of the how 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 the world looks from 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 Moscow, uh, and without wanting to go too deep into the history, part of R- Russian thinking, the psychology of all rulers in in Russia, both Soviet and now Putin, is when you look at the world from Russia's point of view, it's it's surrounded by threats. It has threats on all sides not just from NATO coming to the borders, but if you look at the Middle East, there's a threat of Islamic fundamentalism into Russia, into the Caucasus. You've already had terrorist incidents in Russia as a result of Islamic fundamentalism from Chechnya. You've got, uh, again, similar kinds of threats coming from Central Asia. You've got, you've always got China there on, on the eastern borders of Russia. Okay, China is um, a source of ally, but there's always competition. Uh, with China, if it's in Central Asia, a potential threat there. So Russia is surrounded by threats. It has borders which are not really defensible. Uh, and therefore, it's the thinking, and this goes back to the Tsars, it's a highly militarized society, really. Uh, people talk about the securitization of Russian politics. Uh, you can't separate uh, politics, the political system, from the security needs of the state. Uh, so we've always got to be ready to meet the security threat. So uh, uh, so if any la- alliance or if another power, and this was true in the 19th century, if the British are getting into Central Asia, then that, that, that affects us. <laughs> or if the Prussians are getting too close to our borders, that affects us. So, and, and they look at, they've always looked at the world like that, uh, at least the leaders in the Kremlin, and NATO coming close to the borders is part of that perception of an encroaching security threat. It might not be a security threat now, but in 10 years' time, you know, if there's a different government in Ukraine or in the Baltic states, then, then it could be a threat. And it's already too late. Um, and from their point of view, they have to be proactive. I mean, Russia is surrounded by, this, uh, by threats. Uh, it's surrounded by areas of instability in the Middle East or in Central Asia. So part of Russian security defense thinking is we, in these areas of instability on our borders, we've got to be involved. We must be involved in Ukraine 
because if we don't get involved, somebody else will. <laughs> uh, so it's a kind of diff it's almost a defense. People talk about a defensive expansionism in Russia. We need to expand into areas of instability on our borders, because if we don't, then the British or the United States or the Chinese will. Um, so uh, if you like, Ukraine is a potentially unstable state. So if we don't get involved in Ukraine, then NATO and the United States uh, will or has, <laughs> uh, similarly in the Caucasus. Uh, so there is this kind of mentality of, of being proactive in, in engagement uh, in states on our borders and in areas of instability on our borders for the purposes of our own defense. I know it seems mad, but uh, but you can see it in Putin's rhetoric. You know, he's getting involved in Ukraine because of Russian security. Well, and I, I, I think you're, you're right, Paul, but it, 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 there is an there is an element of, was as you say, from a rhetoric standpoint, it doesn't stack up. But, you know, history is littered with the, with the, we're all going, you know, we all need to huddle together for warmth because everything outside there is trying to kill us. Mm -hmm. And and if you can if you can get the mm -hmm. you know the, the people to believe that you're mm -hmm. surrounded by enemies and we all need to stick together in this, it's it mm -hmm. is actually a very powerful argument to mm -hmm. to unite against a common brackets but faceless enemy. Oh yes, yes, yes. It gives it it gives a justification for centralization of power for assertion of authority. Uh, we need this because the threat is out there and we can't afford to relax our, 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 our grip, as it were. So yes, and, and you deal with internal enemies. I mean, uh, the fact there's an external enemy or a perceived external enemy allows you to deal with internal enemies. I mean, Stalin had this as well. You know, the enemies with it, there, there were enemies within who are potential German agents or whatever. Well, Putin also talks about foreign organizations as, mm. as foreign agents. <laughs> so it's the same kind of mentality almost, really. Um, and also, I mean, this kind of securitization mentality is not just because of the perception that there's always a potential for threat out there. It's to do also with the people who've come to power in Russia around Putin. These are people who are from a security background. You know, Putin himself was previously head of the KGB. Uh, a lot of the people around him in the Security Council are also ex-security or existing security officials. So they have they have a mentality which is about the need to maintain a strong Russian state, uh, the need to establish Russia as a great power uh, and, and to meet the potential for threat. It's a, it's a kind of securitization psychology which, the, which they have. And it's obviously he surrounded himself with these people and and they're reinforcing that kind of that kind of view. If you look at a lot of their of their rhetoric, it is about threat, meeting the threat. Um, time, time is against us, Simon. Do you have any final question just to, to wind us up? Well, I, I, I guess the sixty-four million ruble question is: so, what is the angle that's being missed? The angle that's being missed. All oh, right. Yes, I'm just trying to think now. Well. Uh, I think we covered a lot of the. And if there, if there is one, that's that would be brilliant and fantastic and um, unexpectedly yes. thorough of us. But um, but you're yes. you know we um, yes. making yes. full use of, suppose, of the expert. Um, what's the angle that's yeah. not being looked at? I suppose there is, in terms of motivations. I mentioned security, but there is this sense of honour uh, in terms of of losing face. I mean, 
that one shouldn't underestimate. And I can remember myself when I was teaching around Russia in the 1990s. And it's a, it's a similar thing to say Germany after the First World War. One shouldn't, and you can see it on Putin's face, the anger at the sense of loss of honor and loss of respect. We will be respected. And the sense that um, we were humiliated by the West in the 1990s. That the, uh, and I've, I've, I've seen that palpably, I felt that palpably myself when I've, uh, I've been to Russia and talked to Russians, particularly in the 1990s. There is, there is this feeling, rightly or wrongly, that at the end of the Cold War, there was an agreement that um, you know, Gorbachev himself said, you know, we had agreed to the unification of Germany in return for NATO not moving eastwards. Uh, and there was a view, a hope, and they still have, of a pan-European security architecture. We'd have a new security system that covered everybody. And what they saw was the West exploiting Russian weakness and moving eastwards. Uh, and that was, and, and also denigrating Russia, you know, uh, not paying attention to Russia's interests, ignoring Russia. Even now, you know, when, Putin, when Biden comes to power, he suggests, well, his main focus is on China. You know, he doesn't even forget about Russia. Yeah. Russia is not important. Uh, and he, there's this, this sense of, no, we, whether you like it or not, you'll have to pay attention to us. You'll have to respect us. We are a great power. And if you don't respect us, well, we've got a military here <laughs> that will force you to, to respect us. And you can see it in, in Putin's, the anger in his voice of, of how we were humiliated and you ignored us and you didn't listen to us. And we told you about not uh, expanding NATO. And this is the this is the answer you get. I'm not, I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just no. saying that there is this sense of honor. And that is true enough for Putin, but also across the kind of... Mm military uh, and elite uh, the need for respect and honor and you can see it in the rhetoric a lot of the time okay i think that's the, that's the no, thank you that's very very interesting well that's been absolutely fabulous obviously our our thoughts and all of our support go out to the the people of ukraine both living in oh, the yeah. uk and in and yes, in ukraine yes. itself and and the, the hope yes. is that the you know mm. peace will prevail and yes. that somehow yes. putin yes. gets the wake-up call that you know, as we've touched on today, yeah. you, you've probably gone yeah. too far. But Paul, yeah. thank you. That has been extremely insightful and um, yeah. I really appreciate it. And you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Paul Friendly. Thank you for thank, thank you for the discussion. Thank you. Uh, and I've been Simon Sansbury. Please do join us next week at 627 uh, when we head back to the West. And in fact, a couple of kilometres west up the M27 uh, when we hold our Fairham special. So join us next time at 627 live on Facebook, YouTube uh, and Twitter. <laughs>
Sí, sí. 